TJ Quinn, over the weekend, Brittany Griner released her very first statement since she got released from a Russian penal colony and finally returned to the United States on December 8th. What did she say? She said, thank you. She said it to her supporters. She said it to President Biden. She said it to her family. A couple of the key things, I think, were reinforcing the support her family has shown for the Biden administration, but also mentioning, once again, the family of Paul Whelan, the former Marine who is still over in Russian captivity. He's been there four years as of Sunday, and I think this is going to be the first of many statements from her that mention his name. Yeah, I mean, look, TJ, we're bringing you back onto the show because this is a story, a saga that we have covered more extensively than any other in 2022. And and fittingly, right, this is arguably, I would argue, the biggest story in sports this past year. And you have been on it more closely, uh, more extensively than anybody from the very beginning. And I'm just curious, as we attempt to close the loop here. How did you first process the news of Griner's release? How did you first hear it? What was your reaction at the time? Well, I got a a heads up from somebody that Biden was scheduling an announcement that day in, in the White House. And I reached out to a couple of people, one on the government side, one in Brittany Griner's world saying, is it happening? And the response I was getting, everyone kept saying, it looks like it, it looks like it. And then finally... CBS broke the news. This is a CBS News special report. I'm Gail King with Tony DeCopel and Nate Burleson. We are here in New York and the White House has just confirmed that the United States and Russia have agreed, have agreed to a prisoner swap to free basketball star Brittany Griner. This has all been probably less than 10 minutes. Very big news indeed. The two-time Olympic gold medalist for Team USA was released just minutes ago in exchange for convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. They broke the news and that was it. Suddenly the whole world knew. Yeah, I mean, you had been telling us that we wouldn't hear anything, not to expect anything, until Brittany Griner, I remember you saying this to me, was on a plane in the air. And I'm just curious, like, out of all of the things that you learned reporting this story, what surprised you? What went against your expectations as you, uh, yeah, thought you had a grasp on how all of this might go? Well, uh, I mean, credit to the to the experts I spoke to. It pretty much happened exactly as they said it would. The questions were, how would it come together? But once it did come together, all those elements, where was it going to be? Who was going to be involved? Who was in the trade? We learned, of course, it was Victor Boot, the former arms merchant who was sentenced to 25 years in, in U.S. federal prison. The timing was was really everything. And so then, of course, it turns out, okay, it's going to be in Abu Dhabi. And it is a one-for-one trade with, with Victor Boot. You find out later there were so many signs out there that something was happening from when Brittany Griner was moved from the prison back to a Moscow jail. Mm. Uh, Victor Boot being prepared to leave his prison. Little signs here and there, and people kept it together because they knew that it would be so easy to blow this deal up at the last second. Somebody says the wrong thing, and all of a sudden someone says, forget it, this is off. The title of Sports Story of the Year is like so many sports awards. 
a totally invented honorific that is guaranteed to make a pretty decent number of you mad. But this year, honestly, despite the World Cup and Steph Curry and Aaron Judge and uh, the entire Live Golf Tour, I guess, our winner wasn't much of a debate. This is the fifth part of our coverage of the Brittany Griner story coming 10 months after the future Hall of Famer got arrested at that airport outside Moscow, where Griner was trying to enter the country to play basketball for her Russian club team, which lots of WNBA players did in the offseason, it's worth noting, at least prior to this story and the war in Ukraine. But now, with Griner finally back home in America after being held by Vladimir Putin's Kremlin for 294 days, TJ Quinn takes us inside the biggest and most controversial transaction in the world of sports. And he tells us why this story isn't actually over yet. Hi, Pablo Torre. It's Wednesday, December 21st. This is ESPN Daily. So, TJ, we're in the light of day now, right? Like, we can actually talk about why, in retrospect, all of this happened as it did. The timing of it, I remain curious about it. What was so different about this versus, you know, last April or last August in terms of last week? Well, last April, what needed to happen was her trial. And they wouldn't even have conversations until they got through her trial, even though everybody in the world knew it was going to be a guilty verdict. She went ahead and pleaded guilty because everyone knew it was a foregone conclusion. She needed to do that in order for some sort of deal to be cut later. And the U.S. made an offer in June uh, to trade. They wanted Griner and Paul Wieland back together, and they offered Victor Boot. Mm. And Russia just never engaged. And the more I talked to people in the State Department, in the White House, nobody really understood why Russia simply wouldn't engage. They just wouldn't make a counterproposal. Then it became clear you had the midterm election coming up on November 8th. And again, the same people I spoke to said that they had realized Russia was not going to do anything that could be considered a political victory for Joe Biden in advance of those elections. So they kind of held out hope once again, if they could just get through November 8th, maybe Russia would engage. It didn't happen right away. But on November 18th, there was a statement from the Russian deputy foreign minister saying that they were optimistic that something could happen. U.S. officials said, if you're serious about a deal, act like it. We're not getting engagement from you. But things started to move. And the message that came quickly was they'll do a deal, but only one deal. It was going to be Victor Boot for Brittany Griner, and that's it. Yeah, the quality of the deal has become, in some ways, the big story as soon as this news dropped, because, of course, this is politically charged. Of course, there are sides in this who have incentives politically to declare this a win or a loss. And how do you view all of that, TJ, within the framework, again, of a sports concept of a trade? I mean, that's that's the easy default as people try to look at it as, you know, is it an equal trade? And our good friend, Danielle Gilbert, who's the foremost expert on hostage negotiations, She put it really well when she said, it's a hostage situation. Of course it's unfair. You've got one side that was willing Mm. to take somebody into custody. It's not going to be a fair deal by any stretch. And the Biden administration, anybody who knows anything about this issue knew all along that if either Paul Whelan or Brittany Griner came home without the other, 40% of the country was going to go nuts. And 
it was very obvious political talking point for either side. Mm. The Biden administration had said early on, the president was willing to make an uneven deal. He was willing to overpay just to get an American back. Now, the one caveat I'll make, and I've, in every conversation you have, I, and I have had, is we don't know what we don't know. People look at it as a straight up trade, as if somehow there's some international commissioner of hostages who has to sign off on trades. Yes. No, we are aware of Brittany Griner for Victor Boots straight up. There may well be, and in the past often have been, other elements to a deal that we never hear about. It could be somebody got money, somebody got their yacht back. You've got United Arab Emirates and, and Saudi Arabia got pulled into this somehow. Only the people involved in the trade know all the elements. And maybe this is it. Maybe it really was that simple, one for the other. But when people try to Monday morning quarterback something like this as if it's, you know, a baseball trade, you just can't compare them. No, I mean, people are tempted to make this into Chris Paul to the Lakers, the trade that David Stern vetoed for basketball reasons, right? This is the guy nicknamed the Merchant of Death. Victor Boot, for the basketball player who had weed on her, weed oil on her in an airport. And so it seems like that may have also been part of Russia's plan to begin with. It may well have been. And there are a number of other Russians who are in U.S. custody still who could potentially be part of a trade. What we did see play out is this Russian idea of proportionality, that they were going to make a deal based on how they value the, the hostages the, that they have. And they told the U.S. repeatedly they considered Paul Whelan to be a different class. He was convicted of espionage. The U.S. called it ridiculous and, and de, you know, deemed him to be wrongfully detained as well. But Russia said, no, he's a spy. That's a whole different ballgame for us. They've looked at Victor Boot very differently. The people I've spoken to in Russia have said this merchant of death thing is a catchy nickname, but it's completely overblown. From their perspective, again, you don't look at it as the value of one for the other. First of all, Victor Boot wasn't picked up the same time that Brittany Griner was. He's actually been in custody for 14 years. Mm. The other thing is, uh, somebody else had raised this point, and it's a very good one, that typically federal prisoners serve 85% of their sentences. So it wasn't like he was going to do, probably wouldn't do the full 25. So it wasn't like he just got picked up and now they're trading him straight up. He has done some time. The other question is, what does this do about the safety of Americans in the future? Well, TJ, this is this is the fair critique, right? Like you just mentioned, you talked to the foremost expert in hostage negotiations. The reason you don't ostensibly negotiate with terrorists is for this reason. And Danny Gilbert has written, uh, you know, she had a piece, I think, a few months ago in Foreign Policy, an essay about how this idea that we don't negotiate with terrorists, that's a, that's a catchphrase that came up in the Reagan administration and history shows without a ton of, ton of work to find it. Uh, of course, we negotiate with terrorists. They do it all the time. Yes. They don't like doing it, but they do it. You know, there are people in the hostage negotiation world like Bill Richardson, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, uh, who has a foundation where he works to get people out. He and his supporters have argued that no, there's no evidence it puts people more at risk. Well, there's a fair amount of research that said, well, of course it does. If one country has a reputation, like France, uh, for paying ransom to get people back, you're going to go to the country that pays the ransom. The question is how much you're willing to pay. At the end of the day, either you're willing to do something to get an American home or not, or you just let them sit there at the mercy of another government uh, over a principle. 
But one more piece domestically now that I am still um, I'm still interested in your take on this, TJ, is just how much the public pressure mattered when it came to this decision being made. I mean, it's worth noting again the timeline here, right? This was after the midterms, but this was a campaign that was ultimately almost 300 days long of of celebrities, WNBA players, all sorts of people directly addressing Joe Biden saying, we need Brittany Griner home. How much did that weigh on the Biden administration as you understand it? When you talk to the Biden administration, the, the people I've spoken to throughout this have said, it, it doesn't change anything, that the president was motivated. The people who work in these offices, primarily the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs in the State Department, that this is their job, this is what they do. And so they don't need anybody to create additional pressure. They are in this line of work. This office exists because they're on a mission to get Americans back. And sometimes they they looked at it as though the public pressure was actually an impediment to what they wanted to do, that it mm. it may have given Russia more cause to say, you know what, we're causing a lot of havoc over there. Let's hang on to that for a while because the turmoil can be just as, as you know, valuable to Putin's government as whatever they want in exchange for a trade. What's interesting is that when the White House asked the Griner family uh, to please, you know, be patient with them. Hey, look, we're doing what we can, and it doesn't always help to have this constant pressure on, on the president to do this. They honored that. TJ, this was the first episode we did. The first episode was explaining why why is the conversation around Brittany Griner muted, seemingly. And it seemed to be because there was actually, yes, backstage conversations about keeping the pressure low to not set off Russia's radar. And look, a lot of this was driven by uh, Brittany Griner's agent, Lindsay Kagawa-Colas, and her team at Wasserman. And they, they kept a very low profile, but I know from everyone I was talking to, they were the ones driving the conversation. And they are the ones who bought in and said, we'll keep it on a low, keep the burner on a low flame mm. so that it never goes out. But we're not going to really fire it up right now until we feel that that has to happen. They that, and I, I think that's why one of the first people Brittany Grinder thanked was the president was to say, "Okay, we we invested, we we took a leap of faith that you were going to do this, and you did what you said." After the break, Brittany Grinder's view from inside Russia, and then back at home. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. What exactly was it like for Brittany Griner in that penal colony, TJ, the last place she was shipped to before her release? How would you describe what that was in the end for her? If you're going to boil it down, it would be not as bad as it could have been. Uh, they, they were terrified that she was going to be sent there. And that was one of the, the other little 
shits that Russia was holding in all this was the threat of moving her from the relative safety of her Moscow jail, where she had plenty to read and she might be bored a lot. But the idea of moving her to a Russian labor camp, a prison camp, just in time for the Russian winter. First of all, it's a brutal life as it is. You're, You're up working all day long. And typically in these camps, women are sewing uniforms. But second, would she be a target because of her celebrity and her status, the fact that she is a black lesbian in a country that has taken tremendous steps to try to restrict the rights of the LGBTQ community? Putin's government has been incredibly hostile to that community. Um, Was she going to be a target? You know, Brittany got there. These are not great conditions. Again, this, these are the descendants of the gulags. This is, you know, these Russian camps are out of the Soviet era. And she had, you know, their famously long locks of hair. Uh, she would wash it. It would freeze. She would get chills. And she decided enough of that. And she cut it off. Her representatives knew that that would have a big reaction. To, and, and they were actually concerned that her supporters in the U.S. would think, oh, my God, they forced her to cut her hair. And they were trying to keep the drama at a minimum. So they quickly confirmed, yes, yes, she cut her hair. It was entirely her idea. She followed the rules. People liked her. She didn't get in trouble. She was supposedly treated well. She is too tall to work uh, sewing like the other women were. She couldn't, too, too tall for the bench, and her hands were too big to work it. So they found another job for her carrying fabric around And later there was a photo released that showed her working with the fabric in there. And that she said, all things considered, she liked her job. That it just could have been a lot worse than anything else she had. So no one is is saying life in a Russian labor camp is easy. They're just saying that the worst fears of what could have happened to her and what her life could have been were not realized. When Brittany Griner, you know, leaves the penal colony when she gets to the UAE, when she leaves there and finally arrives in the United States, in San Antonio, to be reunited with her family, with her wife, Sherelle, a protagonist in this story, too, that we've gotten to know. How would you describe what that all looked like, what that felt like? Well, the way it was described to me was it was just incredibly orchestrated. So the plane lands, Brittany Griner's, yeah, her wife, Sherelle, is there, along with her agent, Lindsay. Um... There's this huge airplane hangar. This is a joint military base in San Antonio, specifically Fort Sam Houston within that joint base. They know there are TV cameras outside the perimeter of the base, and they want this to be a private moment. So the plane lands, taxis to a certain point, and then a medical team boards the plane. Uh, Medics who just want to see how she's doing. There was a psychologist on the flight, but they sent another one on. Maybe five minutes of just checking her out. You're all good. And they had prepared the hangar. They had her favorite drink, Dr. Pepper. Uh, They had Cheetos and Doritos. They had some other snacks. They tried to figure out where is a place where she can stand and meet her wife and the TV cameras can't get it because they wanted this to be private. So there was someone noticed there was an X on the floor already taped there for some other purpose that was like in the perfect spot. So that's where Sherelle Griner waited. Brittany came in. Everybody else stood back. You've got military personnel. You've got civilian government personnel all standing back a good, I was told, about 60 feet. And the two of them embraced for a long time and talked. And then Sherelle and Brittany went off to a, I guess it was described as a family room together, just the two of them. Um, Incredibly emotional. 
but every every single step along the way is evaluated in terms of what does this do to her mental health and her ability to reassimilate into her life. Right. Well, what is that? What is that? look like? What does that part of it, the part we can't see now, the part where Brittany Griner is an American again, she's home, except I imagine that the acclimation is daunting. It's really daunting. When, when you look at it from the outside, you would think, wow, she is just in incredible shape. This didn't affect her at all. On the, the video that Russian media released, she seems happy and engaged, and you're hearing the stories about how everybody at the prison liked her, and she comes back and her father brought her barbecue and she's reuniting with family members. Yeah, the friendly montage version of this movie. Perfect way to put it, yeah. And you can just, you can just picture the music too. But the reality is she was held against her will for 10 months and there will be an impact from that. The question is how much? And so one of the key questions that comes up is her personal sense of agency. Everybody that I spoke to who had dealt with hostages, former detainees themselves, government experts, they all said, knowing that everybody is different, one commonality people have is how much sense of agency did they feel while they were there? So paradoxically, sometimes if somebody's only been in custody for, say, a month or two, it may be that they haven't made the mental switch that you need to. And I got to give a shout out to my daughter, Eleanor, who works with victims of, of sex trafficking, who explained a lot about what happens to the human brain when you lose agency. You go into a fight or flight mode and you lose a lot of executive function, frankly, because you are told everything to do. You lose the ability sometimes to use that executive part of your brain. And there are people who get over there, they're in a state of panic, they're traumatized, and they haven't regained that sense of agency. So sometimes if you've been over there longer, and you have had time to do that. You find a way to control the little things. Um, Sam Goodwin, who had been held in, in Syria for 63 days, told me about his experience as a college athlete. He was a hockey player. And what that did for him. Okay, I can't control almost anything in my life, but I can control if I work out in this little space. I, I may not have much food. I can control how I eat it. Any way he could find to gain some sense of control over his life. And that prepared him and a number of people to make the transition better because that part of their brain is, is, is activated again, is engaged. And for Brittany Griner, it was a really good sign in some ways that she decided to cut her hair. It meant that she looked at it like, I may be here for a while. I may be here an entire Russian winter. What can I control? Well, I can control this. And so she cut her hair. That's a good sign. There's always some kind of honeymoon period. And then you find out what the trauma was. And so you, you take the steps now. You don't overwhelm somebody. When she was in San Antonio, you'll notice that we have not seen her yet. We saw a statement. We haven't even seen a video of her. We haven't seen yeah. any public appearance. It's all by design. There's, there's nothing haphazard about her reintroduction. But even the, the amount of time you spend with your family, where you meet with your family, who you meet with, it's, it's all designed to be a slow reintroduction with constant evaluation of, is this person ready for the next thing? They decided she was ready to, to meet her family. They decided that she was ready to leave San Antonio and go home. It's, it's all deliberate to make sure she can handle it as she goes. 
But even just the most mundane aspect of this, right? The whole idea of like, here you are back in America, you missed 10 months, here's everything that happened. I mean, I'm away from my phone for six hours and it's overwhelming what I've missed. What the hell is it like for Brittany Griner? How much did she know about what was happening here and elsewhere around the world as she was, you know, locked up? I'm told that she probably a fair amount because her lawyers were able to see her a couple of times a week. They were able to bring her messages all the time. But it also sounds like the personal notes they were carrying from friends and teammates and loved ones. You're not going to sit there and, and, and share all the awful news with her. You're, what you're doing is trying to buck her up and tell her how much she's missed and loved. Um, so there will be things that she missed. And typically what happens is that guilt becomes a big part of this. Um, whether somebody in her life asks the question or not, it sits out there. Why did you go over there? Why did you go when you did? Yes. If you did bring the cartridges with you, why did you do that? It's very likely that she will feel a sense of guilt for what family members and loved ones went through. And there's going to be, at some point, she will get that question. And I say it specifically that way. Yes, I know there are people listening saying, what are you talking about? She confessed. She was always going to confess. Whether she did it or not, she was going to confess because that was the price, part of the price of getting home. But just because she said it in a Russian court doesn't mean it's a fact. But yeah, she's in the process now of learning what she missed, how it affected people. Um, and that, that you know, I, I don't know how she'll react to it, but most people struggle with it. Up next... Brittany Griner returns to the court. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. We should mention, by the way, that Brittany Griner did play basketball before all of this, TJ. She was a champion in college at Baylor, in the pros with the Mercury. She was a champion both here and in Russia, incidentally. She was an eight-time all-star, objectively just one of the best women's players in the history of the game. And so what does her career look like now, moving forward? Will this international news story actually return to being a sports story? Well, it's going to be a sports story. And we weren't sure if it ever was again. It wasn't clear that she was 100% certain to return to basketball when she was still over there. Uh, in fact, when she was in a Moscow jail, 
her lawyers offered to bring her a basketball that she could use on the court there. And she told them, no, I don't even want to think about it. The surprise was that the last thing I heard was she's going to take the whole holiday, take her time, not rush back into this, even though she went and played basketball a couple of days after she got back. And then all of a sudden, here's the announcement. Nope, she's saying it now before she even gets home. She's back. Extremely grateful this holiday season for the news of Brittany Griner returning home. And she just Love. posted a statement on Instagram. I intend to play basketball for the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury this season. And in doing so, I look forward to being able to say thank you to those of you who advocated, wrote, and posted for me in person soon. She started off with light workouts, just trying to get, get rid of some of that rust. That's one nice thing about being six foot nine is that part of your game doesn't go away. Mm. There's fitness and then there's in-game fitness, and those are very different things. And she'll probably be a step off. And then how's she going to manage that with whatever psychological impact there is from this? Because, again, there certainly will be one. The key word for everybody involved is patience, that they're just glad she's back, expect that she can be in shape before the season next year. Independent of how many minutes she gets or what her numbers look like, she will be the center of attention wherever she goes. Absolutely. Every time she steps into a new arena, it is going to be an event. The season opener, the home opener, every time she goes someplace. The one thing that I think is comforting to them is that a WNBA crowd is going to be far more forgiving than any other you know, public group they're going to be around. WNBA fans, you're not just fans of the game, you're, they're supporters of a mission of women's athletics in a way that you don't see in men's sports. They were campaigning, by and large. This sport was campaigning for her return, and then, yes, they ostensibly will get exactly that on May 19th when the Phoenix Mercury opened the season on the road against the Sparks and then play at home two days later against the Chicago Sky. As I begin to visualize that, and as I begin to keep the shadow of Vladimir Putin, who, who might well be the most impactful person on the sports world in 2022, also in the back of my mind here, TJ, what did you learn in the end from reporting this story over the course of about 300 days? What sticks with you? What do you keep as you go on to whatever your next assignment's going to be? Oh, man. I mean, there's... Uh, everything really kind of comes down to, I think, a newfound humility about reporting on topics like this. And I've never been a huge fan of punditry to begin with. <laughs> and good punditry can be great when people are informed. But the amount of uninformed crap that I've heard for the last 10 months, I'm not talking about opinions. I'm not talking about whether or not it's a good idea to trade the merchant of death for a basketball player. I'm talking about just talking out of your rear end yes. about the facts of this. What I've come away with was, a, I hope, a very healthy respect that I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And that's why you go to experts. And just because you've reported on something for a few months, it doesn't mean you're an expert. Yeah. It just means that you get better at asking the right questions Hopefully you get to better people who can answer them more intelligently. But to have any kind of intelligent national conversation about this topic, 
We got a big hurdle to overcome with this default to punditry that even supposed shoe leather reporters who should know better still fall into that trap. Mm. If nothing else, I, I, I come away with a really strong sense of humility about how I do my job. DJ Quinn, thank you for your reporting, for asking the questions for us on ESPN Daily. Well, thanks for the chance to keep having this conversation. It's been it's been important. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and ESPN Daily, by the way, is officially on its holiday vacation, starting right now. As you listen to the words come out of my mouth. It is a well-deserved holiday break, I dare say, for our staff especially, without whom we would have not won this Edward R. Murrow Award this year or turned out hundreds upon hundreds of, in my biased opinion, really high-quality, thoughtful episodes. And so tomorrow, we begin to rerun some of our favorite episodes from the past 12 months, the stuff we hope you didn't miss, but maybe you did, and so here you go. But yes, thank you. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy all of it, Happy New Year. And I will talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.